Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney, and I am recording this in my son's bedroom because, of course, when you are trying to record a podcast, you must do whatever is necessary. So you'll notice for a little bit, the audio is going to be different at different times of this podcast. So please bear with us. We hope you enjoy the episode. Using data to make organizations better places to work is an exciting new frontier in both data and social science. But data on its own is not automatically useful. And if it's not created, collected, generated, or evaluated with care, it could even be harmful. In today's episode, we will discuss the promise and perils of data-driven approaches to tracking and improving diversity, inclusivity, and the overall effectiveness of workplace anti-harassment programs. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Andrea Jones-Roy, Director of the Undergraduate Studies Center for Data Science at New York University, Zoe Cooper-Thomas, the Deputy General Counsel for DCHR, and Louisa Nguyen, the Equal Employment Opportunity Program Manager for the District Department of Transportation. And as a note, we experienced some technical issues when we recorded this episode way back in February 2020, and we missed out on a lot of audio of Zoe telling us about anti-harassment initiatives in district government. Zoe graciously agreed to come back to talk with us again, this time remotely. So midway through, the episode shifts to me catching up with Zoe one-on-one. Andrea, Zoe, Louisa, welcome to the podcast at DC. So Andrea, you are a professor, data scientist, stand-up comedian, and circus performer. So obviously a range of roles. (laughs) And I'm sure that helps you be able to engage with your students at NYU. But in that academic role, how did you get there? How did you end up studying data science and diversity? No, so I did not set out to be a data scientist or a diversity person. Of course, I have long thought both are important, even before both were cool. But I started out in grad school as doing a PhD in political science. And there I studied censorship in the Chinese media. And every now and again, I still dive into my own research on that. It's But otherwise, mostly unrelated to diversity and data science, except that it requires doing a lot of turning qualitative abstract concepts like bias in the news into numbers and then thinking thoughtfully about those numbers. After a while, I went through a whole thing in my early 30s and I quit academia because I wanted to get out in the real world and see what I could do to hopefully help. I did consider uh, and I did perform professionally circus for two years during that time. (laughs) Right. And I accidentally basically ended up working as a consultant to a company Uh, largely through my advisor, Scott Page, who is a diversity expert in the social sciences. I just started helping out with one particular survey with one company, and I was struck by how little idea anyone had about how to thoughtfully ask questions that people can give answers to, how to thoughtfully uh, use the the information that came from those surveys that that was numeric in a way that actually informed policy or thought about what was going on. And that just, I've only worked, you know, word of mouth with that client, and that's expanded to other clients who are just all, and, you know, as the, the, the availability of data and the, the many pressures on companies and organizations to increase diversity and inclusion and belonging and minimize harassment, et cetera, as both of those things have really come to be important tools and goals, companies just keep asking me to come in and help because they often have a lot of data, but don't really know what to do with it. 
or they're doing things with it that they shouldn't be doing with it. They don't like when I tell them that part, but that's usually what I say. Of course. So, yeah. so just just your your typical academia, circus performance, consulting. Classic. Academia. Yeah, it's, it's snooze fest. It's well trod. And Louisa, you are an equal employment opportunity professional in our own district department of transportation. What does the term equal employment opportunity, or EEO for short, mean? And how does that translate into what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So equal employment opportunity essentially means the freedom of coming to work without having to experience discrimination in any part of the employment life cycle from hiring to the time that you leave, whether it's uh, voluntarily or involuntarily. How it translates to my role at the agency is that I am responsible for ensuring that the agency is in compliance with federal and local laws. And that entails you know, providing training to our workforce on these laws, in addition to providing diversity and inclusion programming for them to further understand each other beyond the transactional day-to-day business that they engage in. And how did you get into this sort of work? And and where's the the passion (laughs) for it come from for you? Sure. So I went to school to become an architect. (laughs) My dad is in the construction uh, industry, and I love and breathe that kind of environment. But when I was going through architectural school and taking classes in engineering in college, I realized even in academia, the disparity that happens Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the classroom. And it was very hard for me to kind of gel um, with that environment. Mm. And so I really wanted to understand a little bit more about myself as what were my values and what was a profession that would fit those values. And so, I mean, I ended up graduating uh, with a degree in business, but as I entered the workforce, I found this really great internship at the DC Office of Human Rights. And it, it was a small little gig, you know, starting at the receptionist job, but it exposed me to so much so early on. I was 19 at the time. Wow. And, you know, I started learning about the D.C. Human Rights Act and the things that the investigators did and the role that that office played for, you know, in the employment world. And it was just so eye opening and inspiring. And I was like, this is what I want to do. So I kind of got groomed internally by D.C. government. That's great. And I became an investigator within, I think, the next three years from being 19 to 21, right? And, you know, I had a really great mentor. She really taught me about, you know, asking, you know, the right kind of questions because, you know, she had 30 years of experience. And to be mentored by someone like that, especially for someone like me who had just begun to be in the workforce, learning about employment practices and issues was uh, very important to me. Zoe, could you tell our listeners about the role of D.C.'s Department of Human Resources, uh, or DCHR for short, in district government? Sure thing. And again, thank you guys for having me here. So DCHR serves as a personnel authority for 40-plus agencies that are subordinate to the mayor. In that capacity, we are really the front line in terms of the first engagement that an employee may have with the district would be at DCHR. We help with recruitment. We assist with onboarding employees 
employees. We touch them in every phase of their employment with the district. We're involved in training of employees, administering of benefits to employees. And then when they're retiring, and unfortunately, also when they are being disciplined, we're part of that process as well. And then when they depart from the district, we're engaging with them in terms of making sure their retirement benefits are there and their health benefits are there. So we are the personnel authority and we engage with agencies directly in supporting them with their personnel needs, but we also touch the employees directly throughout their time with the district. How many employees is that? I mean, 40 agencies is insane, but what's this like scope? Ooh. So I, I'm not sure. I know that there are about 33,000 employees within the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. So a lot of work to do. A lot of work. And I will say, even separate from the subordinate agencies, we also support the independent agencies because they may use some of our systems wow. for things like benefits and, and the like. And they will still call on us for advice just on personnel matters. Wow. But our primary focus really is for those agencies under our personnel authority. And so you specifically are an attorney by training and by trade. And so how does the work of an attorney fit into that mission for DCHR? Yeah, yeah. So I'm the Deputy General Counsel at DCHR. So in that capacity, the Office of the General Counsel, we support our internal client with their needs. So the agency itself with whether it's reviewing of contracts, um, dealing with personnel issues there, providing review, legal sufficiency review of the policies that DCHR issues around personnel issues. We're involved at that level, but we also support agencies directly. Um, We will engage with management at various agencies and within the general counsel's offices at various agencies on their more nuanced or challenging personnel issues. We also collaborate a lot with the executive office of the mayor and the mayor's office of legal counsel on various personnel matters. For example, sexual harassment is one of those that we have partnered with them and with the Office of Human Rights in focusing on as well. And Zoe, real quick, how how did you get into this work? Where's the passion for it come from? Yeah, so prior to coming to DCHR, I was at the Office of the State Superintendent of Education, and I was an attorney there as well. The bulk of my work was education uh, law, but about 30 to 40% of my portfolio was also employment law. And I really enjoyed that. I love the people component of it. I've learned even in coming to DCHR and taking on a management role, you know, it really is all about the people. If you take care of your people, they will take care of you. So I I loved kind of being a thought partner with agencies when confronted with these challenging personnel issues and helping them see all sides of the situation and come to a a resolution that could hopefully benefit all involved. And so that's how I started off getting into employment law and then transitioned that work full-time at DCHR. That's great. That's great. Well, Andrea, we're going to dive more deeply into your research, but just as kind of a a brief taste for for our listeners, could you give an explanation of in your research or your work with companies, what sort of question you're you're investigating and what you've learned so far? So when I work with companies, organizations, I'm brought in as an external consultant normally to help them figure out how to collect or analyze data that that they have or would like to have to better understand things in the diversity space, in the inclusion space, and other things that definitely feed directly or indirectly into that. For example, anti-harassment initiatives would 100% be a part of that. But even things even more indirectly, like how do we evaluate our employees in terms of their contributions to the company? And a lot of those things, I think, you know, the way that we measure or incentivize employees can actually drive employees to behave in certain ways that could be counter to things like diversity or inclusion or belonging or minimizing harassment, et cetera. So I'm normally there, yeah, to sort of help put numbers around things that are otherwise really tough to mm-hmm. measure. So why are these organizations 
asking you to really look into diversity specifically? What's their motivation for it? So I can speak more from, I I don't want to speak on behalf of government organizations. I haven't really consulted with them much, but I can say private organizations. It's a mix of two things. It's a mix of, I have to do this. Uh, if I want to recruit more people, if I want to, you know, be a company that's celebrated, respected, uh, in some cases for legal reasons, they have to look into these things. And so those are the the partners that are sort of like, help us do this, but we don't really care. We just kind of want to get it done. Like a box checking. Kinda, a box checking exercise. Unfortunately. Indeed. And in fact, a lot of those, you know, I think those in particular are cases where you're collecting data and you're not being very thoughtful with the data. You're not really investigating or asking folks who actually know how to think about these things or am I measuring the right thing? And I'm not necessarily that person. It's often someone in the company who, you know, to say, well, what are you seeing and how do we actually codify that? As opposed to just sending someone in a corner or having an intern start checking a bunch of boxes. So that's, but I will say that the good news is that that's typically the minority the companies that I work with. Many of them genuinely want to do it. Whether they want to do it for reasons related to social justice, it's the right thing to do, it's just what we want to do, it's part of what we want our identity and culture to be about at this company. Or, you know, there's a lot of work, and my dissertation advisor is, a, is among those who've worked on it, that shows that diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams. So for a company that's really concerned about the bottom line, they're very interested in recruiting the best talent. That said, most people have a very narrow idea of what best talent looks like or have a very narrow idea of what sorts of things to even measure in terms of saying, have I recruited the best talent? Mm-hmm. Um, or if I'm seeing people who I think are best talent leaving, I'm starting to make assumptions about that based on some very superficial looks at the data of who's leaving the company. You know, something like all these women are leaving the company. Maybe we shouldn't hire so many women as opposed to, oh, gosh, all these women are leaving the company. Maybe we should figure out what's going on in this company that's causing them to leave. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's pay at another company or other opportunities, et cetera. So just looking a little bit deeper. That's great. And before we go further, maybe we should take a moment to just ask, like, when we say diversity, I think people can take that in a lot of different ways. And and how do you view it, Andrea? And then I'd love to hear from our other guests as well. Sure. I mean, I would say that you all have a probably much more richer idea of what diversity means, especially in your context. And it means very different things to very different companies. Typically, what companies refer to or what I tend to work on is the more kind of identity, first blush look at diversity that we all think of. So gender, race, sexual identity, or sexual orientation, gender identity. Age is something I see come up a fair amount, but that's usually where things stop. Companies like to talk about diversity of thought and what you're really looking for, if you're looking for the business case for diversity, it's like, you're okay, I'm bringing in people with a lot of different backgrounds and that's gonna help me be more creative and think of solutions and look around corners in better ways, et cetera. But what I worry about with diversity of thought is that companies use that as an excuse for not having diversity with respect to race, ethnicity, gender, mm-hmm. age, et cetera. And so sometimes I'll come to companies and say, hey, I'm here to help you think about your diversity. Number one, let's, let's nail down what we mean by diversity. And diversity means lots of different things. It can mean cognitive diversity of all different kinds, personalities, education background. It can mean all the kind of identity demographic data. It can mean neurological diversity on the autism spectrum, et cetera. And one of the things I really say to companies is you've got to first define what di- diversity means to you and that doesn't mean that these other elements don't matter, but it means that, okay, let's, let's be very clear to, to folks in your company about what we're prioritizing. So unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is companies say, we want to increase diversity, and all they really monitor is whether or not they have more women. And not only is that missing part of the very big picture, but it's also sending a very strong signal to people in the company that that's the only kind of diversity that matters. So think of all the other people that you're driving away by just focusing that. So being explicit means ruling things out, but you can be explicit, be multidimensional on the diversity, and also say that doesn't mean we don't care about these other things, but this is what we're tracking now. But this is all very high level, and honestly, you know, every company is different, and every company can and should and would want to prioritize different elements. 
So I'm actually very curious what it means in, in your organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think at DCHR, diversity means those things that you talked about. They not only mean, you know, demographic diversity in terms of race and gender and sexual orientation and age and things like that, but definitely diversity and experience is really, really important. I'll give you an example of that. I know that our director really uh, has focused on attracting and retaining veterans. Mm -hmm. So those are people who have very different experiences from civilians like myself, but she recognizes that diversity and thought bring value to the district. And so I agree with you in terms of DCHR's perspective, it is really more multifaceted definition of diversity. Uh, diversity at DDOT, for us, what it means is reflecting the values of the city that we provide services to. DC has one of the most comprehensive human rights act in the nation providing protections in employment for 19 protected classes. And so we try to circle our diversity around those protected classes so that we are furthering the values of the city, right? So that could be age, sex, race, all those things that Andrea talked about. But it's not just about representation for us. It's about creating an environment of inclusion. And so, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we provide a lot of diversity and inclusion events throughout the year. And it can be Anything about, like, for instance, we have one coming up on the 24th where we're focusing on community engagement with the Black community. Transportation, you know, is very much embedded in the district and everything that we do from riding bikes or riding the bus to traveling from other states into the city, et cetera, the streetlights, the sidewalks that we walk on. So we need buy-in from the community that we serve to be able to better provide those services to them. And so it's not just about diversifying the workforce itself. It's about diversifying the thought process that goes into providing those services. Well, I'm so glad you said inclusion, because one of the things I say to companies, I say, okay, now that we've thought really hard about how to measure diversity, what you're looking for, what success might look like, yeah. what I tend to recommend, tell me if it makes any sense in your context, but is to say, okay, now take those numbers, take maybe your goals and set those aside yeah. and say, okay, we're not just here to try to increase those numbers or decrease the other numbers or whatever. We're trying to say, well, what's giving rise to these numbers? And that's kind of your indicator that I would say, check in on every couple of years. And this is where I say, I'm not a medical professional, but my understanding is if you want to track your health, you say, okay, I have a goal for my blood pressure or my whatever, but you don't just look at that every single day. You say, okay, what are the things that I'm doing that are causing this to be there or what can, what interventions? So inclusion there and then we're in a new space where we're like, okay, what does it look like to be inclusive? Again, we have to define our terms. Yeah. And then how would we know we're being more inclusive? So I tend to, you know, in the language of statistics, talk about really how can we push these independent variables, inclusion, and increase those. And hopefully if it's working, we'll see these other numbers change. The kind we, of bigger vital yes. signs of the organization. Yeah, because if you just, and I see this with companies a lot, is if you just try to, you know, I want to increase the representation of women or black employees or black women or, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, you end up with this mindset where it just translates to recruiting a whole bunch of people from whatever group, you know, I want non-engineers on my team mm -hmm. and not actually doing anything to change the environment in the workplace. And then you're not going to get the benefit of all that diversity of thought, diversity of experience, perspective, and you're probably going to have low engagement and they're probably going to leave, right? Yeah. So if you don't change that side, yeah. then you're not really doing much. It really does come down to values and making sure that we diversify those values in-house so that we're better able to provide the services that we've been entrusted by the city uh, to, to do. And, you know, one of the things that we also focus on in 
on top of the programming that we provide or the type of programming that we provide is providing a, a safe space for those who care about things that are happening on the social side of things, like for instance, police brutality and things like that and how it affects the black community, having a space to talk about that. And so we, we are focusing on that internally as well. And Louisa, how, how does that work to make sure that DDOT's activities and engagement actually reflect their values as an organization and the values of the district as a whole? How does that translate into data? Because we know that you work with data in your day-to-day, but how do you actually quantify that? Yeah, so one of the uh, pillars of the District Department of Transportation is safety. And so when it comes to the data in terms of the workforce and the way that we engage the public, we want to be able to represent the public in those specific divisions. So making sure that we send individuals who represent that community, who have a true understanding of that community into those spaces is, is very important. And so you know, we gather data in terms of understanding the representation that we have. And so representation has many layers, right? We can look at the difference between regulars, uh, career service employees, and management employees. We can look at the gender, ethnicity, tenure, and place of residency of the employees. How many positions we have in terms of, you know, engineering or uh, urban, you know, urban planners and things like that, that kind of put projects out there um, for the city salary and, you know, who they're reporting to and what that looks like as well. Um, you know, we also cover different areas such as, you know, new hires, promotions, training, training and development, separations and adverse actions is the type of information that we are looking at. Um, to kind of understand our workforce better. That's great. And then, and how do you know if something might need improvement? Or where you see there's like, there's maybe something as, as Andrea mentioned that like, we need to investigate a little bit further here. Sure. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier about finding your range. And I gave the example of, you know, professional engineers. And, you know, we use U.S. Census uh, data to kind of provide the uh, total availability um, in the market specific to D.C., but we also look at inf- uh, relevant information uh, from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. So between the availability um, and, and understanding what the market is, I guess, injecting <laughs> <laughs> in terms of professional engineers or just engineers in general and what you know, their earning and things like that, that those two points provide for us the range. The data that we gather provides the where we are. Mm-hmm. And it's just the starting point. And those the, those data, the, the, those additional data points from the U.S. Census and the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics really help us kind of gauge, you know, what other things could be affecting the representation. I should have you consult with these companies because <laughs> everything you're saying, I'm like, everyone I know, uh, everyone needs to hear all those things. And yeah. like the two big ones that really stand out that, that companies need to hear is one, most organizations are looking for like a best practice. Like, what should I be measuring? What should I be looking for? Should I have more veterans? Should I have more of this? And you've just described, you know, in your context, we're asking about, are we engineers or not? Or like uh, residency, like where you live, et cetera. And that may really matter in your context. And so, you know, every company needs, in every organization should think about what they want and why and what matters, et cetera. And what diversity of thought, diversity of identity, 
the market they're serving, et cetera. And then the other big piece is so amazing that you have said, which is the data that you decide to focus on based on your context and your goals is the starting point. And I say it in terms of it's the observation stage of the scientific method, right? It's to say, okay, where, here's where we are. And from here, we don't just say, ah, we enact policies to try to correct like trainings and recruitment events and this and that. And maybe those are great, right? But until you then start from that observation and interrogate further, which it sounds like you do, you're, yeah. you're just... It, you're, Darts. What is it? Shots in the dark. Darts yeah. in the dark. That's not <laughs> throwing darts or blind. Dark. Yeah. Blind. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're making a huge mistake. That's what I'm to say. <laughs> yeah. Andrea, how do you recommend that companies or other organizations that you work with go from that stage of we have a discrepancy here in terms of some factor of diversity that we think is important right. to how do we actually improve upon what matters to us? Right. So I. I Almost never see organizations that I work with do that, but that maybe is why they've asked me to come in, is to, to honestly, it's, it sounds so, so basic, but just follow the scientific method. I mean, I think we all learned it in like third grade. When I learned it, I thought it was super boring at first, and now I <laughs> preach it all the time, like a crazy Likewise person. Likewise here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like at the beginning, I was like, this is annoying. Why don't we just look around and see what there is? But really what, what I recommend, and it doesn't have to be this big formal thing, is say, okay, this is the discrepancy that I see. Why do I think I see this discrepancy? And ideally, you, you solicit a lot of input from different parts of the company, different people, different backgrounds, et cetera, to say, what is going on? I wouldn't say just rely on the one CEO or one person to say, here's what I think is going on, and then test that. So generate a bunch of different hypotheses. I think people are leaving the company because of uh, a lack of engagement, because of pay, because of discrimination, because of... Uh, I worked with a company that was convinced that all their women were leaving in their mid-30s to have families. And we set that up. We said, okay, we'll take that seriously, right? And, and it made me mad, but it, I'll take it seriously and add it as a hypothesis. And then let's really test it. And what the hypothesis does is it tells you where to look for further data. So let's take this example uh, of this, this, uh, this company that will go unnamed, right? So I think women are leaving the company to start families. Okay, it, it is in the data that all these women are leaving at a higher rate than men in their 30s. Okay, well, if they're leaving to start families, what are the other observable implications in the world that we should see it? So instantly that tells you what data you need. And one observable implication is they shouldn't be getting jobs elsewhere. And so it doesn't take much to go on LinkedIn and say, do these people have, I mean, I'm, this is not high level statistics. Yeah. This is 39 out of the 40 who left in the last quarter have jobs somewhere else. Then you say, well, why did they go there? Then we can start having conversations about pay. If we want to keep going down the family thing, we can talk about maternity leave, but probably it's something else, right? And so on and so forth. And so that just helps you go from, ah, you know, it, um, panicking or saying what we need all these data, this data points, let's do a million surveys, let's do a million this and that. And you can actually save a lot of money by starting with, with what you think is going on. I honestly, I was in a meeting like a year ago and they were like, all right, we need you to come in and help us with the engagement on this team, et cetera, et cetera. And we, you know, what do you think uh, we should do? And I was like, well, I would start by asking everyone to just write down what they think is going on. And they were like, this is insane. And I was like, you shouldn't be paying me for this. <laughs> like, what do you think? Okay, now investigate that. Like, that's all there is All there is to it. Yeah. Well, and hearing you say that, um, what comes to mind really is uh, ensuring that you have a work environment where people feel comfortable even yeah. sharing that information, yeah. yes. right? Yes. Because the information is only as good as its yes. accuracy. Um, and, you know, there are work settings where people, you know, they, they don't feel like they can be candid, you know? Totally. And so can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Like, how do you help those uh, companies that you've worked with in the past who maybe you're not seeing the right information, right. or you're not getting enough of the right information from these surveys, and you believe underlying that is just, you know, not an environment of trust yeah. and where people feel safe 
disclosing how they really feel. Absolutely. And that's such an important point. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, data does not equal the truth. It equals one perspective that reflects the way that you asked it, where you asked it, who you asked of it, and what you, you know, sort of trust you, you required from people in order to answer it. So there's kind of two answers to this. One is I generally recommend that wherever possible to use, uh, work with data that has multiple inputs. So there's data that's kind of about humans that's direct in the form of surveys, long-form interviews, and that sort of thing. But you can also get data that's more kind of passively generated or observational. Now, this will definitely violate a lot of <laughs> laws, I think, but something, what, whatever it looks like that's legal and not too big brothery and creepy in your company to say, well, if we want to measure inclusion, we would hope that these leaders are emailing lots of different people at relatively similar rates. Or we can look at networks of who's talking to whom if we're generating, you know, and you can do this anonymously in a big enough company, et cetera. It's super problematic. But um, but something like what other passive data are, is gen being generated? How often, you know, it doesn't take much to walk around and say like who's talking to whom and wh where are the meetings and who's leading meetings and who's interrupting whom. And again, that doesn't have to be super quantitative, but it's more passive. So it's not like, what do you think? It's just observing in a thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's, there's uh, a third one, which is uh, you can set up randomized controlled experiments where you put different managers in the room and see if a team performs better. Usually you can't do that in real life, but that is the third way to generate data. But generally speaking, one of the things I say, you know, I think one of the roles that I tend to serve uh, and, and colleagues of mine in this space is given a low level of trust, which you're probably trying to understand, is doing things like hiring outside folks to come in and talk about it, someone who isn't tied at all to your compensation, your this or that. Um, I would say even in you're in the HR space uh, and you're not their direct manager, you're still like there's a fear, right, that the information will be leaked. Etc. So a third party can help. I will say it does not cure it. I have done surveys and interviews and stuff for companies, and the people will say in the survey comments or in the interviews, like, yeah, but I know that they're going to see this data anyway, even if I literally have signed all the legal contracts there ever were that, like, it's on my hard drive, it's under lock and key, it's never so been touched. So what do you do? Do you do it anonymously? I mean, so it's all anonymous anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, but one of the things is that just because, so you do the survey, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you suspect that there's low trust. Well, that doesn't mean you throw away the data that comes out of it, but it means when you analyze it, you say something like, so the first project I did was a DNI survey, diversity and inclusion survey, and the response rate was like 50%. And so that's information. The response rate is information. It says, well, 50% of the company either doesn't think this is important or doesn't trust sharing this information or something. So let's use that as information and say, well, let's probably explore the trust side of things. Or you could go the other side and we don't know, right? You could go to the other side and say, the people, the 50% who did respond to this survey, it was a very long survey, it was a global survey, uh, maybe are the ones who care about this most. And suppose they do, and this is about the company knowing its own context, suppose they do trust that this is anonymous, et cetera. That means that the numbers that we see in terms of representation and all of that are actually going to come out higher because the folks who care about this are the ones who are more likely to participate. So we're not hearing from probably, not to tread in stereotypes, the older white male employees who are like, this isn't about me. And so it's, it affects how you interpret that information on the back end. But the trust piece is, is a huge one. And I think surveys are one way to understand what's going on with people, but they're not necessarily the only way and not even necessarily the best way. But even that like low response, low trust is information for the company. Yeah. 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 And there's kind of, there, it seems like there, there's kind of two uh, two issues here that are probably interrelated within an organization, but like 
there's potentially organizations that are having trouble with a trusting environment overall um, that may be that may be playing out um, in their data or showing up in their data or just their performance as an organization. And there's also this additional step of you need to have trust for input to even address a right. problem, right? Like if you're not if all of the decisions are being made at the very high executive level about you know what's potentially going on or how do we fix this issue or not, um, that it may be that there's also not trust from employees to generate right. ideas either. Well, and some of it is like can can be iterative. So I've worked with one company for years and years, and early on it was this DNI survey that was you know very you know, low response rate, a lot of mistrust, distrust. Uh, Pick the right word there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, a, a lack of trust. Um, and over four years, you know, and it's not just the, the the experiences that I'm having, but they're doing a lot of other initiatives where I am seeing people talk about this openly now, whereas they wouldn't have even talked about it in an anonymous survey. And so doing a survey, seeing the results, seeing that you didn't get the response rate that you want, or people asking questions is, is disappointing, though informative. And then you do it again in a year or two, and they have seen that they were not impacted by their answers or no one got fired in the wake of or they so you can build trust mm -hmm. over time but one of the things i'm curious about in your work in in anti-harassment is i mean this is a classic example where it's like okay we want to understand if people are experiencing harassment bring each person in a room and say are you experiencing harassment and they say ah no because you're just freaking out you don't know who these people are and so then you walk away and you say oh no one's experiencing harassment because everyone said no when i asked and you're like i wouldn't infer that at all i mean is that mm -hmm. that must be something that you think about Sure. So um, let me kind of step back and, and uh, yeah. paint, paint a picture of the context a little bit. So back in December of 2017, the mayor um, uh, issued Mayor's Order 2017-313, which basically reaffirms and clarifies the district policy prohibiting workplace sexual harassment. Um, and that Mayor's Order did several things. So it one defined what sexual harassment even is. So I have chills. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's a good definition. I'm sure. It is, yeah, but. yeah. It, it's pretty comprehensive, right. and I think it goes to even a point that I was going to make about what you just said. Mm. Said if you're bringing people in and you're asking them, "Have you been sexually harassed?" They may not even know what you mean by right. that. So providing that level of clarity, and this this mayor's order does that. That's right. one of the things that it does. So. Um, what it also does, it, it requires that every agency, and again, this is targeting the agencies under her personnel authority, though it encourages the other independent agencies to adopt the order, but the order requires that agencies disseminate the district's policy to every single employee, wow. even, even hard to reach employees, so employees that who may be on extended leave, they're required to receive it as well. Wow. It also requires agencies to provide training. So DCHR is instrumental in that training. Within 60 days of issuing the mayor's order, we had to basically ensure that all employees receive that training. Whoops. This is the point where we lost audio. And it's right when Zoe was getting to the good part. So she's come back to talk to us again, this time remotely from her closet. And she's going to catch us up on the district's anti-harassment initiatives. Zoe. Welcome back to the podcast at DC. Thanks, Sam. I'm excited to be back here and talk about all the work that we are doing within the district to create an inclusive environment for our employees. So thank you for having me. Excellent. And, and the silver lining of this uh, may be that we will get uh, an updated and fresh perspective on your work. So I uh, look forward to hearing that as well. Um, but why don't we go back uh, several months ago into uh, the before times and pick up where we left off. 
I imagine when we're talking about how to monitor and combat sexual harassment in the workplace or anywhere, it's really important to understand what it is. So how is harassment defined in D.C. government? Harassment is defined in D.C. government in accordance to the Human Rights Act. But as I mentioned, in 2017, the mayor did issue an order that delve a little deeper in terms of sexual harassment. So as I'm sure you know, sexual harassment has always been prohibited in the workplace, including in district government. But this mayor's order actually went a little bit deeper in that it clarified that sexual harassment was prohibited at all levels, right? So it made clear that it was prohibited against not only employees, but also our vendors, our contractors, our grantees, customers, and even individuals who may just be visiting or working at a district worksite. So all of those individuals are protected by this order, and they are also all prohibited from themselves harassing individuals within the worksite. Additionally, the mayor's order defined sexual harassment, the two different kinds. So you have quid pro quo sexual harassment, and that's commonly thought of as this for that. So if you do this sexual act for me, in return, you will get this thing from me. So it defines quid pro quo sexual harassment. It also describes and defines hostile work environment sexual harassment. And in addition to laying out the definition for those different types of sexual harassment, and I love this part, it actually provides actual examples and these examples are very current. They're very in touch with recent times. So it includes things like sexting. It defines what sexting entails and it makes clear that that too is prohibited. So I love that, you know, the level of detail and thought that was given in defining sexual harassment and providing examples within this mayor's order. And the mayor's order does a lot of other things too. And I'm happy to go into it. You know, it, it lays out the, the steps that various agencies have to take in response to sexual harassment. So um, it's a pretty uh, comprehensive document and we've been really excited um, in focusing on this work and, and really building out the sexual harassment officer program as a result of this mayor's order. Great, and yeah, sounds both very expansive but also uh, where it needs to be very specific about what anyone involved in our work in district government is doing. So let's go a little bit deeper into that, I think. You did a great job explaining how we think of sexual harassment in district government, uh, but could you describe the work that DCHR is doing to eliminate harassment in the workplace? Sure. So under the mayor's order, it really gave us the ability to partner with our sister agencies and work with other offices, such as the mayor's office of legal counsel and the office of human rights to build out this really robust sexual harassment program. So the mayor's order, for example, requires that all managers receive specific managers training around preventing sexual harassment. It then also requires that every employee in the district upon hire receive biannual training on sexual harassment. So this is an ongoing training that folks are always going to be required to take to make sure that they know what sexual harassment is, they know what's prohibited, and they know how to respond to it. So DCHR has been able to put out that training and administer it to all of our employees within the district. Additionally, the mayor's order requires certain notice requirements. So for example, it requires that all agencies provide notice to every employee in spaces that are high traffic spaces, laying out the district's policy prohibiting sexual harassment, but also identifying 
who within the agency is responsible for receiving sexual harassment complaints and then investigating. And that, that notice also makes clear that to the extent possible, reports of sexual harassment will be maintained um, in a confidential fashion to the extent possible. Additionally, and this dovetails off of the notice piece, the mayor's order also requires that every single agency appoint what is called the sexual harassment officer. And this is that individual that is responsible for receiving and investigating complaints of sexual harassment. Now, what DCHR has done uh, with the support of this administration, we've been able to hire the sexual harassment program coordinator. And this per person ensures that all of the district's sexual harassment officers are receiving training on how to properly investigate sexual harassment. So we're looking at things like, how do you handle victims of trauma? How do you interview that person? You know, how do you receive information from that person in a way that is accurate and that's respectful and that gives them space to really share their experience in a way where they feel safe? So we've been providing them with annual trainings as well as periodic brown bag trainings to keep them up to date on best practices around investigating these complaints. The mayor's order also requires that the sexual harassment officer report their findings to their agency and that the agency has to take reasonable actions in response to the results of the sexual harassment investigation. So, I mean, like I said, this mayor's order is extremely comprehensive. It really lays out um, what individual employees are supposed to do, how they can report, and how agencies are supposed to respond. And it really is at all levels. You know, it even goes to the point of detailing if you are uh, subject to sexual harassment by a high-ranking official within the district government, who do you go to then? And this mayor's order makes that clear. And, and you raised a, a really important point in there, uh, or, or many of them, but one that I want to focus a bit on since we've been talking about data throughout this conversation is when you have something that uh, could be potentially traumatic, something that can need to be very private and confidential and something where an individual might fear that if they're speaking up about something like sexual harassment, that there could be repercussions for them. How does DCHR and other agencies treat that information or how does that become data that then can then be useful for DCHR or the mayor to look at uh, how we are doing on sexual harassment cases and creating that productive work environment? So the mayor's order makes very clear that retaliation is strictly prohibited. So individuals who come forward to report sexual harassment, whether they themselves have experienced it or whether they've witnessed it, that they should be protected from retaliation. And individuals who feel as though they have been subject to retaliation because of their reporting or their involvement in an investigation of sexual harassment, it's made clear that they have the right to go to the Office of Human Rights to report that so that appropriate action can be taken to investigate and address that issue. In terms of confidentiality, we have been stressing to the sexual harassment officers throughout the district the need to handle all information received in a strictly confidential fashion, meaning that information is really only shared with those on a need-to-know basis. So, for example, the sexual harassment officer will have to report the allegation of sexual harassment to the general counsel's office, and the general counsel will report it to the mayor's office of legal counsel. But beyond that and beyond obviously sharing some information with 
witnesses so that they can respond to the allegation. Beyond that, no one should really even know that an investigation has taken place. Now, granted, sometimes employees themselves will spread information beyond who needs to know, and we can't control that. We try our best to equip our sexual harassment officers to manage a situation like that. But in regards to the agency itself handling of that information, we have provided training that it should be held to the strictest confidence to the extent possible. Absolutely. And and really, if we're talking about creating an inclusive and comfortable environment, if you're going to report something as traumatic and potentially embarrassing as a sexual harassment case, you really want people to have assurances that their information is going to be confidential. And I'm going back to a point that Andrea talked about uh, months ago now, but that if people don't trust the reporting mechanism and trust that their information is going to be confidential, then you're really going to limit the environment you can create. So those are, those are really important questions. I'm glad that DCHR is thinking those through. And along those lines, since I just mentioned our conversation from months ago, we do have this benefit of first speaking in February 2020, and it now being September of 2020. And just a bit has happened between then and now. And I'm curious, given that there has been a much needed increase in conversations about all kinds of equity across our country, really across the world, how is that playing out in DCHR's work as it thinks about creating an inclusive and productive and comfortable work environment for everyone who is in DC government or works with DC government? Sure. You know, this time, like you mentioned, has been a really challenging time for us as a society, but it has also presented us with a lot of opportunities, right? A lot of opportunities to reflect on what we're doing right and what we could be improving on. And certainly this administration has been from day one really focused on creating an inclusive work environment. And so in the last few months, we've just seen that rev up even more. So in addition to the sexual harassment program that we've already discussed, I also mentioned the disability inclusion work that DCHR is involved in in working with DBS, the Department for Disability Services, in supporting our managers to ensure that they are creating workspaces that are really inclusive. And, you know, things like when they're going into interviews, how to recognize within themselves some biases they may be bringing to the table and how to not allow those biases to keep them from hiring the most qualified individuals, looking past things like disability and really looking at the candidate before you. So we're really excited about the disability inclusion work that we are revving up. Additionally, the district recently has been approved for funding to do a survey around the LGBT community. And this is really exciting work also. This survey will be looking at transgender and non-binary employees' experiences within the district. So it will be a survey by a third party that's looking at things like workplace climate. How does the workplace climate support or not support this population of employees? Also, it'll be looking at things like hiring and recruitment practices around transgender and non-binary employees. So we're really excited to get that work off the ground in the upcoming fiscal year. Additionally, and this is work that's really spearheaded by the Mayor's Office of Policy, there is a race equity project that is ongoing, but they've sought feedback and partnership from DCHR, Office of Human Rights, and other agencies 
so that we can really begin thinking about what does race equity look like in the district, you know, not only actually from an employee standpoint, but what about our contractors? What about our vendors? You know, how do we ensure that there is that diversity, inclusion, that equity across the board? And so it's a really exciting time for the district. And we really want to push this work forward as far and as deep as possible during this time. So we see it as an opportunity for us. Absolutely. Definitely much needed work. Also a really exciting time in terms of making a lot of difference in the district. And so uh, we're really excited to hear about that, to take part in it. Obviously, also as part of some of the new changes recently, our larger office, the Office of the City Administrator, is really fortunate to have a new office of equity in it and a chief equity officer for the district and a, a team of individuals that are going to be focused on this. So we're, we're really excited about that development, too. And Zoe, we'd love to have you come back and talk to us uh, sometime down the road so we can get an additional update on, on how that work is going in the district, if you'd be willing to. Absolutely. I'm always excited to talk about this work. Great. We are too. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. This episode was produced by Nellie Moore and edited by Danforth Webster and Amanda Hermans. Our music is provided by Kevin McLeod. If you liked what you heard, visit us on our website, thelab.dc.gov, and follow us on Twitter at the lab underscore DC for more information on our work. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney. <laughs>